In a news report from ABC News, there are reports from Father's Day weekend of 2020. More than 100 people were shot over Father's Day weekend, including at least 12 minors, five of whom died, according to data maintained by the Chicago Sun-Times. Jason Francis, 17 years old, and Charles Riley, 16 years old, were fatally shot that Saturday evening in South Chicago, according to police. About an hour later, Mecca James, three years old, was fatally shot while sitting in the backseat of his father's car in Austin. Amariah Jones, 13 years old, was fatally shot inside her South Austin home while showing her mother a TikTok dance, according to family. Michael Ike, 15 years old, was fatally shot in Smith Park. That Monday, another three-year-old girl was also shot in Chicago Lawn. My name is Haley Worrell, and here today with me is Samantha, Jillian, Victor, and Evelyn, who are here to discuss how low-income neighborhoods have a rise of gun violence, the causes, solutions, and organizations that help those affected. We are the Pew Pew Crew. So first off, to begin this discussion, I'm going to direct the first question to Evelyn. I'm going to start broad, and then we can get a little bit more in depth as we go further into the discussion. So broadly, can you tell me a little bit more about gun violence in low-income neighborhoods? Why is it more prevalent in poverty areas? Well, the first thing that I would like to say to answer the question would be that low-income communities are associated with higher crime rates due to the fact that there are not many high-paying jobs, education opportunities. Because of the lack of great resources, many individuals often in low-income communities have to resort to crime to pay the bills. There is a whole other avenue of thought that also brings the idea that these communities are negatively impacted and have been this way for a while. In low-income black communities of today that experience violence, there has not been a change in the areas for a long time because we as a society do not fund the change. We leave communities of minorities that we are heavily discriminated against in the past with a very uneven playing field to reach success that the middle upper class family is born with. That introduces the need to start selling drugs, for example, in order to make it because they do not have the resources as the others do in order to achieve success, say in college. These areas of low poverty are often crowded with gangs, drug dealers, which leads to gun violence and not only between the members of gangs and drug dealers and the users but for a whole community we can call that community violence the whole community is affected thank you for that evelyn that makes a lot of sense you offered some great opening insight that we will talk a little bit more in depth about later. Jillian, next question goes to you. 
Before we start going into the deeper issues, what are some different frameworks we could use to reduce gun violence in low-income communities that we can think about while we dive deeper into the issues of gun violence? Well, restorative justice would be beneficial to aid in the rehabilitation of those who commit gun violence, as well as provide closure for the victims. The implementation for restorative justice will aid in an overall safer community. Restorative justice allows for redemption and betterment of offenders, as well as accountability for their actions, while also giving closure and justice to the victims. Community justice could also be a strong aid as it would allow for lower income communities to receive more funding in order to provide stronger programs or improve current programs that could lessen gun violence and its effects. Lastly, transformative justice would be very beneficial as it looks into structural problems in society in order to allow for future problems to be less likely. Each avenue of justice has something to offer these low income areas that experience a rise in gun violence but what we need to do as a society is start focusing on an area of justice and implementing it into these communities instead of just being outraged by the crimes that take place. We need to recognize the roots of the problem and stop it at the source. That would mean we would need to implement community justice by funding these areas so that they are as well off as the middle to upper class areas and have the same chance to succeed and further their education instead of turning to the life of crime that surrounds them. Jillian, those are some great ideas to start us out. I want to get a little bit more in-depth now, so my next question is to Samantha. What are some gun control laws that currently exist in the United States? Well, to answer your question, there are several gun control laws that currently exist, but I say that lightly. The Gun Control Act of 1968 regulates firearms at a federal level. It requires that a person must be of age 18 before they can purchase a firearm. There are also laws that state people with prior felonies cannot purchase firearms and people that are involuntarily committed to mental health institutions are not allowed to purchase firearms. I said that I say this lightly because there is a surge of people who buy guns from other individuals and not necessarily businesses. What good do these laws do if you can bypass a middleman or a business and buy directly from someone? What good are these laws if a teenager can steal their parents or grandparents' guns and go participate in a school shooting? They are not any good. Samantha, that is very interesting to know and to think about. That is a really good point. There is no way we can monitor all of the gun transactions that occur because I could easily purchase a gun if I'm not mentally stable, from my neighbor, say. Victor, the next question I have is for you, and that will lead into more in-depth conversation about the issue. How does gun violence in the United States differ from other countries? The United States has more mass shootings than almost any other advanced nation, and is one of six nations that make up 50% of the world's gun deaths. Per 1 million people, the United States has 29.7 gun deaths, while Switzerland, the next closest, has only 7.7. 7. 
And if you take the next five nations and add up their totals, you get 30.6 per 1 million, which means the United States are less than one death per million below the next five highest nations combined. Wow, Victor, that is incredibly sad to know about our country. Victor, can you explain some of your ideas on the ways that we can control or limit guns in low-income areas, or in general, since the United States has more mass shootings than any other advanced nation? There are many ways to control or limit guns in low-income areas, one being stricter gun control laws. By making it harder to buy a gun, it will in turn be harder to take it into a low-income area. Adding on by instating deeper background checks, it is less likely for criminals to possess firearms. Another option adds into the background checks, and that would be a psychological exam in order to establish that the person buying the gun at the time of purchase is mentally capable of owning a firearm without risking injury to themselves or others. Lastly, one of my biggest points would be a national database of firearms purchases and attempted purchases. As of today, it is completely legal for a citizen of a state with strict gun laws to go out of state, purchase a firearm that is legal in the state of purchase, and return home where the firearm is not legally purchasable. This tends to lead to individuals, become, individuals bringing those firearms into lower income communities. For example, 60% of crime guns taken by police in Chicago were purchased outside of the state of Illinois. Victor, those are some great ways that we can try and limit and control gun usage in these areas that are at high risk for gun violence. Jillian, can you explain a little bit more about what factors there are in these communities that lead to the violence to begin with? Like, what are the biggest factors as to why there's more gun violence in low-income areas? There are different factors as to why gun violence is more prevalent in low-income communities. The lack of resources is one main factor because without housing assistance and job options, many lose their homes to foreclosure, which causes vacancies. This has been linked to an increase in violent crimes by moving the crime to other areas where they are less likely to be caught. <clears throat> there is also a distrust of the government and law enforcement. Without fast prosecution of violent crimes, you end up with witnesses scared to testify and gangs being formed for protection. When there is distrust in government sources, some will decide to disregard the laws in place just to protect one another. We see an example of this in Tanihishi Coates' telling of the story in which a white woman pushes a child out of her way. However, surrounding white spectators come to her defense and even threaten that they could have the father arrested just based solely on him being a person of color. Thank you, Jillian, for those great insights into the factors that play into having more gun violence in low-income areas. Now that we can understand that, Samantha, in these areas where gun violence is prominent, what impact does that have on the individuals in the community? Gun violence in communities has left long-lasting impacts on those directly and indirectly affected. The exposure to gun violence impacts health, well-being, and development, as well as creates trauma for many people. 
Research has found that the exposure to gun violence among children and teens can change the chemistry in their brains, which severely impacts their cognitive and emotional development. This can cause them to avoid traveling alone, avoid certain locations, and even carry a gun for protection. And while doing so, they are more likely to be less physically active, exhibit antisocial behavior, and perform poorly in school. It also impacts our economic health as residents and businesses move away from high violence communities, which decreases property and sales taxes in these areas. Thus, cities are unable to pay for the public services needed to support communities living in poverty and facing high rates of violence. As you can see, reducing gun violence is a key component to promoting healthy well-being. Thank you for that insight. To talk a little bit more in depth about one certain impact, Evelyn, what is the economic impact of gun violence in low-income communities? An increase in violent crimes leads to a decrease in funding investment, which leads to a lack of economic development. This negatively affects home ownership rates, credit scores, home market value, overall income, health, education, and job outlook. In 2014, an analysis was conducted in Oakland, California, Washington, D.C., and Minneapolis, Minnesota to show the correlation between gun violence and home values, home ownership rates, and credit scores. It showed a whopping $22,000 decrease in average home values in Minneapolis and also a $24,621 decrease in Oakland, California. This is correlating to gun violence per capita. Also, a 20-point decrease in average credit scores in Minneapolis and a 9-point decrease in Oakland, California. And last but not least, a percent, a three percent decrease in home ownership rates in Washington D.C. I want to bring up one of the best social movements that I have found that seeks to address this problem that is so prevalent in our society today. I'm sure that you have all heard of this movement and what it does, but to me. One of the most prominent social movements is the March for Our Lives movement that seeks to transform gun violence and end it in general. They focus on the forces that are fueling gun violence and then they seek for solutions to lessen those forces by demanding accountability for the industries that promote gun usage, addressing the issues within our society and the role that the government has in aiding the prevalence of those issues. That leads me to my next question that I have for Evelyn. Can you explain in a little bit more detail the March for Our Lives movement's goals and how they try and reach these goals? The March for Our Lives was born from the tragic events of the 2014 Parkland shooting, where 17 faculty and students as young as 14 were killed by 19-year-old Nicholas Cruz. 
The founders of March for Our Lives, which consisted of the survivors of this fatal shooting, made it their mission statement to, quote, make sure what happened to our community never happens again. They declared gun violence as an epidemic and have since been very politically active within their communities and within the nation. March for Our Lives seeks to raise gun standards of gun ownership, which is crucial for this statement. On top of seeking an effort made to raise gun standards, they want justice and accountability for gun lobbyists that push gun sales. They want to raise more publicity and awareness on gun violence within the states and wish to talk and wish for more talk and more action within improving state safety and most importantly, safety within the schools. Thank you, Evelyn, for that information. I highly encourage you to check out the March for Our Lives movement to get some more in-depth information about what they do to stop gun violence. So these last two brief questions are going to go to Jillian, and then we will wrap up today's discussion. Jillian, how can we look at the issue of gun violence through an intersectional lens, and is that something that we should be doing? There are different factors as to why gun violence is more prevalent in low-income communities. The lack of resources is one main factor because without housing assistance and job options, many lose their homes to foreclosure, which causes vacancies. This has been linked to an increase in violent crimes by moving the crime to other areas where they are less likely to be caught. There is also a distrust of the government and law enforcement. Without fast prosecution of violent crimes, you end up with witnesses scared to testify and gangs being formed for protection. When there is distrust in government sources, some will decide to disregard the laws in place just to protect one another. We see an example of this in Tanihishi Coates' telling of the story in which a white woman pushes a child out of her way. However, surrounding white spectators come to her defense and even threaten that they could have the father arrested just based solely on him being a person of color. That is so very true, Jillian. I appreciate that insight, and I completely agree with you that we need to view things through an intersectional lens in order to get a full picture of all of the victims of gun violence. My final question is this. We talked a little bit about the theories of justice and how commutative justice would help fund the community so that we can make sure that crime is lowered, which would in turn help lower the extreme incarceration rates that happen in these areas. Why does this extreme incarceration rate of African Americans in these areas occur? I do not have actual statistics, but I'm sure there are just as many crimes committed by white individuals. I am glad you brought up that question, Haley. One great piece of writing that I find helpful in understanding that issue is a book by Michelle Alexander called The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. It goes in depth on how the incarceration system in the United States has grown in the masses because of the war on drugs and policy that targeted these lower income, predominantly African-American areas. 
This has only continued on in our society and has made way for many African Americans to be banned from many civil rights like voting and participating in a jury trial. These rights that were once taken from African Americans back when the Jim Crow laws were in place are being taken from them now because of the harsh sentencing and mass incarceration problem that the United States has implemented today that targets African American communities. I mean, just think about it. In that same piece of writing from Michelle Alexander, she stated, about 90% of those sentenced to prison for a drug offense in Illinois are African American. White drug offenders are rarely arrested, and when they are, they are treated more favorably at every stage of the criminal justice process, including plea bargaining and sentencing. Right there is the perfect summary of how this system actually works and how our justice system is aiding in gun violence, crime rates in low-income areas, and the overwhelming oppression of African Americans. We need to fund those areas to help them succeed so this gruesome cycle does not keep happening. But the government does not want that to happen because they make money off of the mass incarceration that requires these strict laws to keep people in prison. They participate in the new age convict leasing system so that they can outsource their prisoners to companies and make more money. This is shown in a great video called Slavery by Another Name. It started after emancipation and has continued to target African-American individuals ever since. Wow, Jillian, that is some great information for our listeners. I, too, encourage everyone to read into The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander and watch the video Slavery by Another Name. They are both really great resources for people interested in learning more about those specific issues. Gun violence and the war on drugs leads to mass incarceration, which in turn makes ways for rights to be taken from these individuals, and they are stuck in a never-ending circle of poverty and crime. It is truly tragic what African-American men and women have to experience each day because of these horrific and strict laws and policies that go into targeting African-Americans. Well, today we have talked a lot about why gun violence happens what factors make communities at risk for more gun violence, some movements that help fight the issues of gun violence, and what we can do to help the fight to lessen the gun violence in our country. The more that I learn about gun violence as a whole and the more stories that I hear of gun violence occurring, the more outraged I get that this topic is so controversial. Something like promoting restrictions on firearms to save citizens in our country from dying should not be controversial. Seeing our children murdered in school shootings and watching communities in our nation being overrun with gun violence should be enough to have Americans come together and bring some change. If there was more knowledge and support of the various forms of justice series that I think we could bring some more reform and action into this fight with a better chance of success. Even though it will take work, we have to be willing and to put in that work so that we can get better results. We can create a safer world for our children and our future generations. We can give the communities in poverty and the families within them a better chance of success. And we can come together and make a better world most importantly. But it has to come to the end of this podcast, so I'm going to ask for your brief final thoughts on this issue at hand. Samantha, why don't you start us off?
Yes, we discussed a lot today about how gun violence hugely impacts our communities. There are many movements and things that can be done to help transform gun violence. We have all heard many stories and experienced the effects of gun violence and know that there is nothing good that comes from it. We need to take those steps to help stop gun violence in low-income areas, and we can do this by keeping guns out of the hands of the wrong people in order to make our communities safer and shape the future of gun safety. I completely agree. Thank you for that insight and thank you for your time today. Victor, any last thoughts? So it's it's still crazy to me how as as an advanced nation, as advanced of a nation as we are, with the extremely high homicide rates by firearms and the insane amounts of school shootings that we have compared to every other nation, even after little six-year-old kids are killed at school, that Congress can never really agree to pass legislation to protect the people from gun violence, especially in inner cities. In income communities where they it almost seems like they don't try as hard absolutely those are some great points Jillian final thoughts for you I agree with what everyone has said already. For me, after learning more about the impact that gun violence has on low-income communities, I am shocked that more has not already been done to minimize gun violence in these areas. I do believe that we have the right tools and the knowledge to make the change. I don't think that the change has happened yet, but I'm hopeful that we will see it soon. Yes, Jillian, that is so true. I am also shocked that we haven't done very much to minimize gun violence. I mean, it's 2021, and we just haven't done enough. We see on the news all of the time sad stories that involve gun violence, and I think it's about time that we start to fix that. Finally, Evelyn, can you close us out with your final thoughts? Overall, it is safe to say that gun violence is a tragic occurrence. It negatively impacts all types of communities. However, it has become prominent and it is an epidemic that rages through low-income communities. It robs them of their health, of equal income, equal opportunities, and most importantly, the lives of their children. Change will only occur once we learn to listen and respect one another. Evelyn, 
What a great way to end this segment. This is a perfect way to sum up everything that we have all discussed tonight. Gun violence is a tragedy. It is a tragedy that can be avoided, that should have been avoided long before now. As we have talked about it today, there are so many different theories of justice that we could implement as a society in order to resolve this issue. It is 2021, and we are still seeing stories of gun violence on the news. We are still seeing our children's schools being targeted, our communities being destroyed by the bullets of others. We are still seeing mass shootings everywhere we turn and every single time that we turn on the news. There is more that could have been done for the victims that have known gun violence, the communities that have been negatively affected by gun violence, and the opportunities that they were robbed of. The victims that have lost their lives to gun violence deserve better from our country. The future victims of gun violence deserve better for our country. We all deserve better from our country so that one day we can turn on the news and there will not be another story of another tragedy like the many that our country has experienced. But in order to do that, I urge everyone who is listening to please take in all of the information that we have discussed today and use that information to speak out. Donate to organizations like March for Our Lives that help aid in this fight. Participate in marches or protests in your area. Educate others who do not have the same knowledge and statistics that are needed to develop an educated opinion on how to stop gun violence. We owe it to our future, to every mother, grandmother, father, grandfather, uncle, aunt, brother, sister, and child who life has been affected or will be affected by gun violence. Well, that's all the time that we have for today. Thank you all for listening. This has been the Pew Pew Crew and our thoughts on the issues of gun violence in poverty areas. Listen in for next time.